Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. As the World Series moves to Washington, D.C., and Tom steadies himself for natitude, he and Jay reflect on some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories which caught their collective eye. They include an SEC examiner who allegedly stole confidential information on a company's investigation and then left the SEC to become that company's chief compliance officer. Imagine that. What are some of the data privacy considerations and investigations? Are you looking at your third parties for data protection issues? What's at stake for corporate wrongdoers? Mike Volkoff tells us about the five common weaknesses in the OFAC compliance program. Jay starts a new series on CCI with the what's, the why's, and the how's in a mergers and acquisition culture assessment. Why is understanding behavioral science critical for a compliance program? Jeff Kaplan dissects it for us and we give it back to you. Why is a speak up culture hard to find? Dick Kaplan explores this. We take a look at AI and internal audits. Uh, healthcare company, Avanar, engages in corruption in the U- U.S. It's not an FCPA violation, but a Federal Claims Act violation. We review some of the top podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network over the past week and talk about, of course, the World Series. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Voice of Compliance, back again with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 177, for the week ending October 25, 2019, the Natitude Edition. As I steady myself for the Astros heading up to Washington in the Nationals' home park, we take a look at some of the uh, stories that caught our collective eyes this week in the area of ethics and compliance. So, Jay, Mr. Monitors, how are you? Uh, We are in fiery Southern California. Uh, PG&E is doing intermittent power blackouts in uh, hopes of trying to cancel some fires, but there's already a couple things that have sprung up today. And uh, I have two little girls here who are hoping that tomorrow will be a fire day as opposed to the snow days that daddy used to have in New Hampshire. So on that fiery note, why don't we jump right into it? So, uh, Jay, we start with, uh, once again, a story that if I told you, you would say, no, there's no way that story happened. If I said, well, it's a it's a fictional story, and you would say, no, fiction has to have basis in reality. Um, you can't have something this outrageous. And what we have, Jay, is a 
examiner at the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, downloading and accessing information about a company under investigation by the Securities and Exchange Commission, and then uh, utilizing that information uh, to go get a job as, wait for it, the chief compliance officer of that organization. So Michael Cohen, a examiner with the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, in the Asset Management Unit of the Enforcement Division, became the chief compliance officer for a company called GBP, excuse me, GPB Capital Holdings. And the funny thing was they were under investigation at the time he went over there. Uh, Apparently, he disclosed during his job interviews that he um, had this information and disclosed uh, confidential information about the investigation. Uh, He went over to GPB in October of 2018, and uh, he was indicted last week uh, over these allegations. So, uh, you know, pretty stunning fall from grace. But you have to wonder how many people knew about this. Certainly uh, GPB knew about it uh, because uh, they hired him and he talked about it in the job interviews. And um, a real black eye for, I, well, let me, let me, let me uh, walk that back as uh, Mick Mulvaney would say. Uh, I can't say it's a black eye for the compliance profession because this is so outrageous and so beyond the pale. And frankly, someone who is uh, relatively new to the field of compliance uh, because they'd been a government employee for multiple years. So, but still a, a really troubling case. Uh, we've li- I've cited to, or we've cited to in the show notes, uh, uh, Dylan Toker over at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal wrote about it and re- really reported on it. Matt uh, Kelly on Radical Compliance. Uh, talk about it. The coolest guy in compliance. The coolest guy in compliance wrote about it. So uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know whether to just feel outrage or uh, a shock or awe or what. But this is just. Fortunately, it's, it, it doesn't happen very often. But uh, certainly uh, not very good looking for uh, Mr. Michael Cohen, uh, not of uh, President, former President Trump fame. But uh, still some pretty serious uh, allegations of uh, ethical misbehavior. Uh, I, I still think that you're, you're mad that you didn't come up with the plot line yourself because this could have been a could have been a bestseller. <laughs> so um, what are some of the data privacy considerations and investigations that uh, you uh, came across this week, Jay? Sure. So this is the first of two articles we're picking up from the NYU compliance and enforcement blog. And uh, this is a a client note that comes to us from Clary Gottlieb. Uh, Many investigations, particularly those that are cross-border in nature, are likely to present data privacy issues. And by keeping data privacy laws in mind as an investigation starts, your organization will avoid the risk that it has failed to satisfy certain requirements. Uh, There's some different segments that the article looks at. It looks at at the outset of the investigation, it looks at during your investigation, and then during the after investigation. So a couple things that you should keep in mind at the outset of the investigation is having a basis to process that data. Companies should therefore be familiar with the data privacy regimes regimes rather that they are subject to 
and what those regimes require for data processing at the outset of the investigation. Next step is to minimize process data to come up with an acceptable basis for processing projected data. Most data privacy regimes require an organization nonetheless. The third part of this uh, phase is limiting the purposes of process data. And if you keep with the requirement that there be a basis to process data under relative data privacy regimes, an organization must also limit the purpose of processing that data. Next on to during the investigation, notify those whose data is processed, transferring the data, only transfer the data that you need. And in the last part here, uh, there are some requirements from the European Economic Area, the EEA, that says only permitted if the European Commission has found that one, the relevant outside jurisdiction provides adequate data protection. Number two, appropriate safeguards are in place. Three, specific legal derogation under Article 49 of the GDPR is applicable. These transfer restrictions impact where data is stored, reviewed, and ultimately transferred. So by incorporating data privacy concerns into your investigation, you can use proactive thinking before the investigation gets underway or goes astray. So much time, effort, and expense can be saved in the long run if these steps are followed ahead of time. Next up, Tom, uh, you wanted to take a look at, what do we got here? Third-party management, why we're missing 31% of material risks. Yeah, uh, Jay, this comes to us once again, as you noted, from the Compliance Enforcement blog over at NYU's program on corporate compliance and enforcement. And it's a really interesting article by Adam Hill, who is with uh, Gartner. He's a uh, director of data privacy research at Gartner. And he talks about uh, data privacy risks uh, in the context of third parties. And I certainly, I think most listeners would understand the risk for that. But the other, um, in addition to really the specificity of his article, Jay, I wanted to use it as a, as a broader teaching point or at least discussion point between us because his, his real point is that in data privacy, there are uh, the, the major approach is point in time which is premised on the idea that third-party risks are best identified by an exhaustive list of questions prior to onboarding of the third party. And uh, remediating, or, uh, or rather recertifying those questions at a future day. Now, to the uh, ABC compliance practitioner, that would be uh, translated to due diligence and recertification at contract expiration. Um, well, what he points out is, that that really uh, misses at least one-third of the risks. Now, that one-third is estimated in data privacy risk, but it's probably just as large in the ABC space as well. And I would really like the listeners to think through, do you have the situation where once they go through due diligence, really that's it uh, until the contract is renewed? And if you do, you are really missing... uh, not only a opportunity to fine tune your compliance program, but you're probably missing a huge amount of risk that either you missed in your due diligence or arises after the contract was signed. And it really points to why the fifth step in the five steps of life cycle of uh, third party management, that being 
after the contract is executed is the key element because it's execution of the relationship, which is so critical, but most important, it's managing that relationship uh, after the contract is signed. So I really, uh, I thought the article uh, obviously is uh, specific to data privacy or data protection risk, but it really, it really points to how you need to have a much more holistic approach to your compliance program uh, going forward. So um, uh, kudos to Adam Hill for uh, having us look at it from that perspective. Yeah, I think it also ties in nicely that um, you're often talking about continuous improvement. So it's it's not like you're going to do this at one static point of time that you need to come back in. And especially with this one third potential loss of uh, data points, it makes a lot of sense to do that. Right. Um, next, we have an article that comes to us from uh, Dan Portnoy and the Grand Jury Target blog. And the DOJ clarifies stakes for corporate wrongdoers. So uh, I want to start off with this paragraph because it made me smile. It says, you know that it's been a busy month in law enforcement news when a speech and memo announcement by the DOJ Criminal Division Assistant Attorney General Brian Benzikowski concerning corporate criminal penalties, penalties arise with little fanfare. It must be something about an impeachment inquiry in the air. Uh, on October 8th, Ben Sikowski rolled out a memo detailing the DOJ's policy for corporations settling criminal charges. Uh, corporate co- poverty, poverty claims aren't new, but the ben- this Ben Sikowski memo and its accompanying questionnaire <clears throat> excuse me, offer clarity and perhaps further incentive for cooperation. Critics of corporate penalties have argued that penalties do little to deter cor- corporate wrongdoing instead disproportionately punishing shareholders and employees. This memo aims to address these critiques, and Ben Sikowski stressed greater transparency and cooperation between law enforcement and defense counsel. This memo supplements the guidance prosecutors already use in coming up with corporate penalties at sentencing, both under the federal sentencing guidelines and the justice manual. Uh, one of four of the relevant factors that he thinks that should be considered in a company's ability to pay the fine include the background on the company's fu- current financial condition, alternative sources of capital, collateral consequences, and victim restitution. <clears throat> the uh, AAG's remarks that this new memo will encourage self-disclosure and cooperation by corporations may be a touch optimistic but a corporation's ability to reduce its criminal penalty to stay viable notably does not take into account timeliness or level of cooperation. So uh, I guess this goes all the way back to when we looked at what happened with Arthur Anderson and coming out of Enron and the fines were just so great and the liabilities that the company went away. So I think it is um, a thoughtful analysis. Tom, any, anything on your end? No, I really uh, I like the way you opened it. Uh, because it really didn't seem to make uh, that big of a splash. But any time the department uh, articulates uh, a wider discretion that they will engage in with the the rules and regulations, or at least the guidelines the DOJ is losing, uh, using uh, published us so that we have insight into their thought process and decision-making process, I think it's a positive thing. Great. So uh, next up, we have the first of two articles coming to us from Mike Volkov. This one appears in the Navix Global Ethics and Compliance Matter blogs. 
And Mike talks about five common weaknesses in your OFAC compliance program. What's Mike thinking about? So uh, Mike, uh, in addition to being an ABC compliance practitioner, is also well known in the OFAC trade sanctions realm. And in this piece, he he says companies really, really need to elevate their game and sanctions compliance as it's becoming much more critically important, um, particularly under this administration who, who wields trade sanctions literally on an hourly basis. So uh, he details five common weaknesses, uh, segregation of duties and control processes, and many uh, companies maintain a screening program, but they assign it to one person. Obviously, that arrangement can be uh, risky. So um, second, beneficial ownership and the 50% rule. Uh, identifying uh, beneficial owners of an organization is certainly a well-recognized, critically important uh, uh, role to fulfill, but it's a, a critical task as well for sanctions and ABC and money laundering as well. Sanction search mistakes. Uh, occasionally, companies make mistakes when conducting searches. Um, it, it can be uh, as simple as uh, what appears to be uh, double entries or uh, matches, failing to uh, recognize matches close or ignore refinements and identifiers or common spellings. Uh, but OFAC screening is not just a yes or no. It involves judgment calls. Uh, number four, third-party risk mitigation. In order to minimize potential third-party risk and transfers of products to prohibited persons and countries, companies must com- com- employ a robust set of controls to ensure compliance by third parties. And then picking up on your thought on continuous improvement, Jay, really it's the failure to audit, measure, and continually improve is number five. So a good review by uh, Mike Volkoff. And uh, once again, we just have to emphasize the increased important nature of OFAC sanctions, compliance programs, uh, even if you don't sell directly, if you sell to distributors and they resell um, to prohibited persons or prohibited countries, you're going to be on the hook. Great. So uh, next up, I'm starting a new series on <clears throat> the Corporate Compliance Insights website. <clears throat> Pardon me. It's called the What's, Why's, and How's in M&A Assessment of a Target Company. And in the uh, first edition that came out on Wednesday, I took a look at how one can assess ethics and compliance in the context of a merger or acquisition, and specifically what you should look for in an assessment and why you might even want to consider engaging a third party. Many issues in the M&A context are driven by the target or the acquired company and usually arise due to the acquiring entity not paying enough attention during the pre-acquisition phase. There are a number of items buyers should look for in this phase, beginning by asking, does the target company um, have best practices compliance program? Does the company have a code of conduct? And questions along that line. Next thing we should look at is, does the target have a chief compliance officer? And do the compliance professionals have the independence and the authority and resources to do their job effectively? You should also consider whether what is the compliance posture of the board of directors And then next, turn to structural and cultural issues. Employee morale should be considered. Have you found any red flags in the target that might indicate that they have tolerated a culture of harassment or bullying? Reviewing the target sales model is a good proxy for testing anti-corruption. Is it internal with their own employees, or do they use third parties or agents, representatives, or or distributors? At that point, when you start to look at each of the third-party relationships, 
look at a business justification questionnaire, due diligence and evaluation, contract issues, and finally, management after the contract's execution. As you often say, Tom, document, document, document. The acquiring party should run a thoroughly documented process of all the above issues and be sure to document the entire pre-acquisition process. This could be important if you discover any illegal conduct, which you should report to the DOJ if such discovery occurs upon closing. So pre-acquisition investigation and due diligence will really determine your post-acquisition steps. This should be a documented process, and by having an independent third party be responsible for it, it can lower the risk if there's a problem. As problems are identified, the acquiring entity can decide whether to go forward with the M&A transaction. Next week, I'm going to take a look at another issue in M&A and exactly how the process, the effect that the process may have on both the target and the acquirer. So, Jay, next we had an interesting article from Jeff Kaplan of the Conflict of Interest blog, but he posted this article on the FCPA blog. So that's where we cited to it on the show notes. And uh, it's entitled Understanding Behavioral Ethics Can Strengthen Your Compliance Program. And what Jeff articulates is that although behavioral ethics is a well-known field in social science and certainly one that compliance practitioners are aware of, He advocates a a discipline uh, basically known as behavioral compliance and ethics, which he says attempts to use behavioral ethics insights to develop and maintain effective compliance programs. He says this can be done on a couple of levels. The first would be called specific behavioral compliance and ethics lessons, meaning enhancements to various discrete compliance and ethics program elements, risk assessments, training, etc., the second and more general is the aspect of behavioral compliance and ethics is the overarching finding that we are not as ethical as we think. The importance of this general lesson is based on the notion that the greatest challenges to having effective compliance and ethics programs is often more about the will than the way. Uh, he goes through risk assessments, training and communications and their importance. He also talks about the importance of enforcement. Uh, both a corporate enforcement of its own internal policies and regulatory uh, enforcement uh, as a behavioral driver. Um, And it's really, uh, I think, uh, a different way to uh, look at this issue. Once again, I think many compliance professionals, Jay, were familiar with behavioral ethics, but Jeff's expansion of this into behavioral compliance and ethics is a key insight. And I think it's one that we are probably going to look at and talk about uh, more often in the coming uh, months and even years. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating article and we not only link to it, but there's also some links to uh, Jeff's conflict of interest blog. So uh, we do a, a double dip now into the FCPA blog, uh, something coming to us from the founder, Dick Casson, and it's called a speak up culture can still be hard to find. Um, Richard takes a look at some recent research that was done and nearly a third of employees in Singapore were aware of misconduct at work during the past year, but many of them didn't report it. 40% of the Singapore respondents who were aware of misconduct never raised a concern with management or through another appropriate mechanism. So uh, Dick goes on to quote some of these different uh, surveys that were done and in different places, and 
he concludes by saying the results of the Ethics at Work survey in Singapore shows that the impact managers have employee behavior, with a third saying they felt pressured by their bosses to compromise ethical and standards. However, it also shows the positive impact of effective speak-up procedures on employees. If organizations demonstrate their commitment to addressing concerns, employees will be more inclined to speak up about misconduct. And I think, you know, uh, we think we talk about this a lot whenever we talk about whistleblowers. And if you don't know that your complaint is going to be seriously considered and there is no follow up, it really dissuades people from coming forward. So I think those uh, facts and figures uh, confirm those percentages. Uh, Next up, another uh, article coming from Corporate Compliance Insights. It's about um, AI and interview uh, interview audits. Almost, Jay, internal audits. Internal? I can't read my own chicken scratch, sorry. (laughs) Uh, Jay, this is an article by uh, Calvin Alvaro and Randy Pearson, and they talk about the role of internal audit in auditing AI or uh, artificial intelligence. This is not utilizing of AI to help in uh, an audit, but really how an auditor would think through an appropriate AI audit. And so I really found this very interesting. Um, the, uh, some of the uh, areas that uh, audits should look at are governance, strategy, data, uh, the algorithms, uh, cyber resilience, third-party management, compliance. And uh, really they... Uh, believe that if an organization is uh, going to rely on AI for its operation driven value creation, uh, then internal audit should not wait until it has really figured out and polished its AI auditing approach or until a definitive industry standard is established. AI, excuse me, internal audit, IA, can begin delivering valuable assurances by looking at the areas of the core component of an AI framework. And by doing this, internal audit can move forward to show itself more relevant, but also help a company uh, match or measure uh, what they've tried to set out and do by the uh, specifications they're following, whatever those might be. So very interesting article and and really a lot, I think, for the compliance practitioners to think about uh, for internal audit and compliance as well. So, Jay, um, next up, we had a uh, article from another article from Mike Volkoff, where he talked about corruption in the United States. And it didn't have an FCPA angle, but an FCA angle. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So um, Mike feels that the False Claims Act risks significantly outweigh FCPA risks, not to diminish those risks, but relatively speaking. And an example that recently came in the news Avenir Pharmaceuticals recently resolved a kickbacks case involving a scheme to induce physicians to prescribe Nudexta, an FDA-approved treatment for, oh, this will be fun, pseudobulbar effect, PBA, which is characterized by involuntary, sudden, and frequent episodes of laughing or crying and occurs secondarily to neurologic disease or brain injury. Avenir agreed to pay $95 million to resolve civil FCPA claims, uh, which dealt with illegal kickbacks and misleading marketing. 
Abner entered into a deferred prosecution agreement under which it acknowledged paying physicians to maintain an increased number of prescriptions they wrote. The company also agreed to pay a penalty in forfeiture of $13 million. At the same time, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Northern District of Ohio uh, indicted four individuals, including former Avenir uh, employees and another physician who prescribed New Dexta. Um, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of Georgia entered into a DPA citing Avenir's substantial and ongoing cooperation. Between October 2010 and December 2016, Avenir paid certain physicians and healthcare professionals uh, to participate in the scheme. The company also marketed New Dexta to long-term facilities for treatment of patients suffering d- dementia. And again, this was a non-approved use of the drug. Avenir finally entered into a corporate integrity agreement, a CIA, which HHS OIG, so the Health and Human Service Office of Inspector General, which has required Avenir to implement additional controls around its interactions with uh, and conduct with internal and external monitoring. So uh, it's a pretty pretty big fine. It doesn't make our our top ten, but Mike's uh, Mike's statement goes well to think that their FCA risks are uh, prevalent and maybe might be as much as the FCPA risks. Tom, this week you had a series of top-notch commentators join you on your podcast. Can you tell our listeners some of the great conversations you had this past week? Sure, Jay. Uh, on Monday on the FCPA Compliance Report, Francine McKenna talked about the KPMG PCAOB mess. Um, on Tuesday, I had uh, two women, uh, Andrea Falcioni, and Tracy Cornwell from Rethink Compliance on my podcast, Innovation in Compliance, on why uh, content is still king in compliance. Wednesday, we had um, on the great women in compliance, uh, Lisa Fine interviewed Barbara Petiti. She is the chief compliance officer at um, Alstom. And if you are in this space at all, you know what that means, that she's been uh, on quite a wild ride for the last several years. Um, today, um, I posted a podcast on 12 o'clock high, uh, a podcast on business leadership where, uh, I'm actually the, uh, the speaker and I'm hosted by a good friend, Richard Lummis. We took a look at the panic of 1907 and how it was the leadership and indeed the integrity of JP Morgan, which halted that panic. And then finally, earlier this week, I posted on life with GDPR, a very special episode where Jonathan Armstrong talked about the uh, data privacy, data protection issues from Brexit. Um, Whatever Jonathan's personal views on Brexit are, those were not really the subject of this podcast. It was the things your company needs to do to prepare and what Brexit might mean, whether it's a hard Brexit, whether it's a crash out Brexit, whether it's a soft Brexit, whether it's an agreed upon Brexit, whether it's a love and kisses Brexit, uh, or get the hell out of Dodge Brexit. Uh, you really need to think about what all of those scenarios might mean for your company and you need to be prepared. So a lot of fun and a lot of good information packed into uh, this week's uh, podcast, Jay. Did uh, anything else drop today from uh, maybe something from the Everything Compliance Gang? Uh, yes, that uh, dropped as well. 
So we had cool. the, the full the full roundtable. Uh, Mr. Monitors uh, was there. Sarah Haddon of uh, Corporate Compliance Insights, Jonathan Armstrong, Quarterly Compliance, Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, and Mike Volkoff, the founder of the Volkoff Law Group, all had contributions uh, in the not going to Doral edition of Everything Compliance. So uh, now we have to uh, turn the podcast to the World Series, which is occupying some of our hosts like yourself and Lisa Fine, the Uber Nationals fan. What say you after the first two games? So uh, we had a couple of hiccups in Houston, and uh, we're going to go up to uh, Washington and uh, take care of business. Now, you were telling me it's all part of the plan, right? It's all part of the plan because Houston wants to have a World Series winner in Houston winning the World Series game. So uh, I'm looking at coming back to Houston and uh, taking it home. All right. Well, that sounds like a a, a good plan to me. So uh, on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 177 for the week ending October 25th, 2019, the Natitude Edition. So Ladies and gentlemen, enjoy the rest of the World Series over the weekend, and we will be back next week to tell you about all things ethics and compliance during this week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top ethics and compliance stories. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.